Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's episode 65 of Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. Big E here, and we're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to better strengthen and serve your community? We're going to talk today about a new case from the Court of Appeals that deals with an issue that is one of the most challenging issues for law enforcement officers to deal with. How do you deal with larceny, embezzlement, fraud by a caretaker? Someone who has power of attorney, someone who has authority to act for the victim and exploits the victim using that position of trust. There was a great new case on this, and, it, and it, it's worth talking about. There's actually two cases, one case from last year in August, one case from just a few weeks ago from the Court of Appeals that deals with this head on. And I think they're really useful cases. We don't talk a lot about white collar cases on this podcast, but we should talk about them more. And I think both of these cases provide some great insight into how law enforcement can make sure that perpetrators get held responsible when they exploit people who are uniquely vulnerable. Before we get into it, though, I, I forgot to thank someone who is a great supporter of law enforcement and a law enforcement officer himself. Um, there is a awesome little chocolate store uh, right near Quantico called Nasbro. And if you don't know about Nasbro, it's N-A-Z-B-R-O. They're makers of, they make you know, little fine chocolates, uh, gift chocolates. They're really delicious. They're really cool. Um, the owner is also a law enforcement officer. And he's a police officer. I had him in one of my classes. Uh, great student, smart guy, good police officer. And as it turns out, really good at making gift chocolates. And, you know, it's coming up. Valentine's Day is coming up, February 14th. Um, if you're looking for something cool to get for someone, uh, check out Nasbro, uh, N-A-Z-B-R-O, makers of fine chocolates are at nasbro.com. Uh, they didn't ask me to make this plug, but uh, I was at a training and um, he brought a bunch of chocolates for everybody in the class and just gave them away and they were awesome. And so I just wanted to plug him. I figured right before Valentine's Day might be a bad time to, uh, to let you know about them. So let's dive into it. You've got somebody, uh, they're an elderly victim, they're a vulnerable victim, uh, they're somebody who suffers from a disability, and the caretaker has stolen from them. Now, we've all seen that before, and the way that they steal might be to steal by checks or steal from an account or use credit cards or whatever, but the challenge is always basically the same. The facts are always a little different, but the challenge is the same. How do I prove that this was a theft and not something that was a gift, if the, especially if the vulnerable person has memory issues. Um, how do I prove uh, that this was something done without authority? So this issue has come up, as it turns out, several times in the past. There's a great new statute that was passed a few years ago that I'm going to talk about. Uh, but let's talk about this case that comes out in January that really deals with it head-on. It's a case called Chittum versus Commonwealth. C-H-I-T-T-U-M versus Commonwealth. And it's a case out of Roanoke. And it couldn't be more simple. Mom and daughter. The mom has about $160,000 in an account. She decides to add her daughter as a joint account holder. She also gives her daughter power of attorney. Her daughter then empties the account. Uh, her daughter never put any money in that account. It's all the mother's funds. And it's all the mother has to live on for the rest of her life. But the daughter dumps the money out, takes it, and obviously steals it and spends it on a bunch of junk. The victim uh, reports this theft and testifies at trial, I did not give her the authority to dump my account to take all my money. Why would I? It's all the money I have to live on for the rest of my life. But the daughter responds, I had power of attorney and I was a joint account holder. 
So how could I be guilty of larceny when you've given me joint uh, authority over the money and you've given me power of attorney, right? So, and they just charge her straight up with larceny. Nothing fancy, no fancy embezzlement arguments or financial exploitation code sections. Uh, Roanoke just charges her straight up with larceny. And so here we have the Court of Appeals for the first time, really, addressing these two issues. What does it mean to be a joint account holder? And what does it mean to have a power of attorney? Is that a license to steal? And the court could not have come out swinging harder on this issue. Uh, they affirm the conviction and make very clear that being, being named as a, account hold, a joint account holder does not provide license to drain funds belonging to or contributed by another person. In fact, in this case, the court goes back and looks at the code and notes that under the Virginia Code, if you have two people who are joint account holders during the lifetime of those parties, each party is only entitled to, only owns the amount that they personally deposit into the account unless there's some intent otherwise, unless there's a clear, uh, clear intent that the parties will actually share the money equally. And, and that, you know, obviously in a marriage that might be a little bit different, but here it's mother-daughter situation. So uh, here the court said just because it was in a joint account gave the, uh, de- gave the defendant, the thief, no right to steal the money. What about the power of attorney? right? Uh, We see this all the time. And here again, the court comes out swinging. Just giving somebody a power of attorney is not evidence of an intent to give you money. Uh, The court says here, the defendant's role as a victim's agent with power of attorney didn't authorize her to transfer the victim's money against her wishes and contrary to her best interest. And again, looks at the Virginia Code. The Virginia Code says a power of attorney has a duty to act in accordance with the principles other victims' reasonable expectations to the extent actually known and in the victim's best interest to act in good faith, to act only within the scope of the authority granted in the power of attorney, and act loyally for, the, for her benefit. Here, then, the, the defendant had an obligation to preserve the victim's assets, and instead, by transferring the funds to herself, the, the court found that the defendant acted contrary to and outside the scope of her duties, owed the victim as her agent under the power of attorney. So some really strong language from the court here. Uh, just because somebody's a power of attorney, it's not a license to steal. Just because somebody has a joint account holder, that person does not have a license to steal. And, you know, it took until, you know, January, really, of this year for the court to, uh, to make that clear. But there go two common defenses in these cases, right? Um, but, of course, many times the cases are more complicated than that. And in Floyd versus Commonwealth, which was a case decided back in August, a case from Lynchburg, this was a case where we had more complications. We had a victim who not only uh, was, you know, just elderly, but here uh, actually had memory issues uh, and was severely disabled. Um, in Floyd, the victim suffered from hydrocephalus, is, was confined to a wheelchair, and had permanent memory problems. And the defendant here was her sole caretaker. The victim uh, allowed the defendant to use her credit cards to purchase groceries. Um, She held on to the credit cards herself, but the the defendant had the authority to use the credit cards. Uh, The victim didn't otherwise use the cards very much, didn't really keep a balance. Um, She had over a two-year period, uh, you know, not made very many charges at all. However, the defendant took those cards and made about $50,000 in purchases in a brief period of time. She, in fact, changed one of the addresses on the credit card to her own personal address. Um, and the victim 
could testify at trial, and she was able to testify, look, I don't remember telling the defendant she could do any of that stuff, but she did admit that she has memory issues and she does have, um, um, you know, and it's, and it's possible, um, you know, that there was a conversation they had that she doesn't remember, but she didn't remember ever giving the defendant authority to do any of that. And the defendant's story was the victim had claimed, had permitted to use the cards and to change the address and that the victim had simply forgotten to do so. Now, um, the victim also uh, paid the defendant by check, and, and she discovered, they, the police also discovered that the defendant had gotten multiple payments for overlapping periods, had basically gotten paid twice um, uh, for the same services by drafting payroll checks and presenting them to the victim for signature. Um, she presented her, the victim for signature for days she didn't even work. She wasn't even there, and the victim signed those checks. The defendant claimed those were loans, and she said, oh, you know, the victim agreed to give me these loans. Um, and again, the victim didn't remember ever giving the loans uh, or allowing her to have that. So here we have a more complicated situation, right? How do we deal with this situation? Um, well, the Floyd case is an interesting case. And when the court addresses it, they go back and they talk about a case that they had decided a number of years ago. Uh, and that was a case called White versus Commonwealth, which is a case back in 2017. Now, as a general matter, it's it, in the um, in the Lynchburg case, they didn't just charge Floyd with larceny; they charged her with embezzlement, and they didn't just charge her with larceny; they charged her with credit card fraud. And so, before we address the question in this case, which is whether or not the evidence is sufficient and how do you prove it. I do want to address a general issue about people who use credit cards that are given to them to steal money. Uh, remember that credit card theft, the crime of credit card theft, involves you taking or, uh, or holding on to without authority a credit card or credit card number. So I could be guilty of credit card theft even if I didn't actually physically steal the card. Uh, I could be guilty of credit card theft, for example, if I find a credit card and I just pick it up off the ground and I know it's not mine and I hold on to it with the intent to use it, right? I'm withholding that card from the owner. I could be guilty of credit card theft. I could also be guilty of credit card theft if I write down a credit card number. Let's say I take a picture of the credit card or I write down the card number and I write down the expiration date and the security code and I hold on to that. I give the actual card back to the owner, but I continue to hold on to that with the intent to use it. I could still be guilty of credit card theft. But the core here, the gravamen of the crime of credit card theft is I don't have the authority to have either the card or the credit card number. But what if I use the card outside the scope of what I'm authorized to do while I have the authority to have a card, right? So some of you guys are working in law enforcement and in law enforcement from time to time, right? Agencies have things called uh, P cards, small purchase cards, right? That they issue you because, you know, from time to time, maybe you have to, you know, buy things, right? Uh, maybe you have a gas card, like a small purchase card for gas, or you have a small purchase card to make purchases for your agency, like uh, food and equipment and uniforms and boots and all that kind of stuff, right? Stuff that you normally have to buy and you normally have to buy using a credit card online because they don't take checks online when you order stuff. So, uh, you know, you have a small purchase card to buy printer paper or whatever. So if you were to use that card to go to buy, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, booze for a party on the weekend, you clearly don't have the authority to do that, but you didn't steal that card. You have that card with authority. You're authorized to have the card. You're authorized to have the card number. You're just not authorized to use it in that way. So what is that? Is that credit card theft? Is that credit card fraud? 
Well, no, it's not credit card theft because you didn't steal the card or the card number. You have it with authority. And it's not credit card fraud because credit card fraud under 18.2.195 is using a card that you stole or a card number that you stole or that you got obtained using credit card theft to buy or purchase items. So if I unlawfully withheld a credit card number, if I found a credit card on the ground or if I wrote the credit card number down uh, and I got that credit card without authority, without the authorization of the victim, and then I used it to buy things, yeah, that would be credit card fraud. But if, I'm, if I've got a, you know, a P card, a small purchase card, and I'm authorized to have it, and during the time that I'm authorized to have it, I make unauthorized purchases, that's not credit card fraud. Well, what is it then? Well, I'm obtaining money and property using the victim using my, the victim's uh, money uh, to, to get things that I'm not authorized to do. We call that embezzlement, right? So that's 182111, that's embezzlement. And that was the issue that came up in Kovalaski versus Commonwealth, uh, which was uh, a case decided by the um, Court of Appeals uh, a long time ago. I'm sorry, not Kovalaski, uh, Soparno versus Commonwealth, a case that was decided back in 2008. Um, where the defendant's employer provided him with a card to use on a small purchase card. He made unauthorized charges, and he got convicted of credit card uh, fraud. And the court reversed the conviction because, no, that he wasn't—he was authorized to have the card. That was embezzlement, but he was authorized to have the card. That's not credit card fraud, right? But in Kovalaski versus Commonwealth, there Kovalaski was given a credit card, but he was supposed to return the credit card when he was done. And he did return the credit card when he was in. He put it back in the drawer in the office. Uh, but later on, he snuck back in and took the card without authority and went out and spent it. Kovalaski tried to use the argument that Soparno did. Uh, and that case was only a couple of years later. Uh, but at that point, the court said, no, 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 no. You didn't have the authority to have that card when you used it. And so that is plain old credit card theft and credit card fraud. So with that background in mind, let's take us back to our issue with our victim who's, uh, high, who's, who's, who's very ill and, and has these memory issues. Um, as it turns out, there's a case called White versus Commonwealth, which is a case back in 2017 that was very similar to the facts I described to you from Lynchburg from the new case that, the, uh, that was decided by the Court of Appeals in August. White versus Commonwealth is uh, a, a case from... And it's a case where the victim suffered from. Uh, don't read this case if you're somebody who's a hypochondriac or worried about infections. This is a, a this is a, a terrible story, of a of a woman, um, just a young woman who got West Nile virus, and uh, contracted encephalitis, and as a result suffered a serious brain injury, um, that caused her to have she she had memory issues within like a very short period of time. She had problems with personal hygiene, dressing, cooking, cleaning. Um, she couldn't take care of take care of herself. She couldn't remember the date, the time, the season. She was constantly forgetful, confused, had all kinds of physical limitations. She couldn't converse. Her speech was garbled. She couldn't understand simple phrases. I mean, this is just a regular everyday person just like you and me got West Nile virus, encephalitis, and, and this is what she's rendered into. So um, really horrible, horrible story. The defendant, White, was her caretaker. And so here in White, again, you have a victim who <clears throat> cannot shop for herself. Uh, she has credit cards, but she physically couldn't remember to like pull out her credit card and give it to the person and then remember to take the card back and put it back in her purse. So White's job was to take the card out, give it to the uh, salesperson, uh, pay for the purchase, and then put the card back into White's purse. 
uh, when she was done, back back into the victim's purse when she was done. Uh, of course, again, you know what we find is that uh, the defendant takes them, takes the credit cards, spends them, buys you know thousands of dollars worth of stuff for herself, writes herself checks, and so on. And just like in uh, the, the the Floyd case, the case from Lynchburg, uh, she claims, oh, you know, how do you know that the victim didn't authorize that, authorize me to have that money, right? Um, you know, the victim can't remember anything from moment to moment, so maybe I had her authority the whole time. Uh, you can't prove that these uh, that these items I purchased, this credit card uses I did, was unauthorized. And the court said, no, the evidence is sufficient to show, again, that when she's using the card, um, that uh, that it was without the authority of the victim. Now, it helped in White that White lied. White said... Um, you know, when the police confronted her, she said, oh, no, 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 that's that's my co- that's my coworkers. They're all trying to point the blame at me. I didn't do anything, right? So she never actually comes out and says, oh, the victim authorized me to do this. And the court says, no, you know, look, obviously she was lying about that. In addition, she didn't have the authority to use these cards. Uh, her employment agreement said that she couldn't use these credit cards. She wasn't supposed to use these cards. She was supposed to put the cards back into the victim's purse. That was her job. Um, there was no evidence that the victim did uh, ever give her authority, so uh, that couldn't, you know, that that was not a reasonable hypothesis of innocence. And the Commonwealth didn't have to prove. The court emphasizes here the Commonwealth didn't have to prove um, the complete absence of any possibility that the victim gave her authority. They just had to prove there was no evidence of the authority, uh, and that and obviously in this case in White that she had lied, which demonstrated her guilty knowledge. Now I will tell you that in White they also use. A, a, a code section, which is 18.2178.1. And this is a very powerful code section that had just been enacted uh, just a few years before. And it is Virginia's uh, financial exploitation code section. So 18.2178.1 makes it a criminal offense for a person to take money or any property deemed with uh, of any value knowing or when they should know that another person suffers from mental incapacity and using that incapacity takes the money. So what this addresses is a situation where you have somebody, right, like Ms. White, who's not capable of understanding the consequences of her actions, right? So you could convince Ms. White, hey, can I have your credit card to use money? And Ms. White, who barely understands what's going on, is going to say, yeah, okay, fine. And then you take it and spend it on a Disney vacation, right? Uh, well, I'm not you know, in the traditional sense embezzling, I'm not in the traditional sense stealing or committing credit card theft, but clearly that's exploitation. And so the financial exploitation code section 18.2170.1 is designed for exactly that situation, right? Um, and so that offense, right, covers any situation where somebody's mental incapacity prevents them from understanding the nature or consequences of the transaction or for understanding the nature or consequences of the disposition of the money or the thing that's being stolen. So going back to White, they could clearly show that Ms. White uh, suffered from a con from from a condition that prevented her from understanding the nature and consequences of her actions. She oftentimes didn't understand the nature and consequences of where she was at the time. So even if the defendant, even if Ms. White, um, sorry, maybe I'm confusing me. So the victim, the victim clearly suffered from a condition that prevented her from understanding the nature and consequences of her actions, and Ms. White was the caretaker. Clearly, in this case, um, if Ms. White 
even if she had gotten, the defendant, Ms. White, had gotten the consent of the victim, that consent was worthless. That's not a legal defense. And the defendant, White, should have known that because she's with White, she's with the victim all the time. She must know that, that, that the victim has no idea what's going on around her at any time. So, uh, again, that's a powerful tool in your hands. And in the uh, White versus Commonwealth case, the case from Richmond back in 2017, the Commonwealth uses that to great effect. So uh, White is convicted, and that takes us back to the case from Lynchburg, uh, which is the Floyd case in two th- in, uh, back in August of last year. So in the Floyd case, again, we have the victim who suffers from um, a physically debilitating illness, um, but she doesn't. she's not somebody who suffers from mental incapacity to the point where uh, she doesn't understand the nature or consequences of her actions, right? She does understand the nature or consequences of her actions, um, but the victim does from time to time suffer from memory issues. And so here we have a more difficult situation, right? Uh, in white, it was clear the victim, you know, clearly was exploited. Uh, but here you have that sort of middle ground. What do you deal with somebody who occasionally has mental issues, but otherwise um, isn't in a condition where they're totally incapacitated? Uh, well, in the um, in the Floyd case, the Commonwealth charges the defendant with credit card fraud and embezzlement for stealing the victim's credit card, uh, for using uh, using the card to per- make a bunch of purchases, for changing the address in the credit card and for writing herself checks. So in this case, right, uh, the, the, of course the defendant is going to argue and in fact does tell the police, uh, well, unlike Ms. White in the Richmond case, I did get authority from the victim. This victim did allow me to take this money. She did allow me to use these credit cards. So she doesn't lie, and that was very helpful in the White case that she lied. Here she she doesn't lie and say it was somebody else. Here she lies and says the victim gave me the authority. So how do you address that, right? How do you fight that issue in court and demonstrate the exploitation? And here the court says... Uh, that the evidence was sufficient to demonstrate both the credit card theft and also the embezzlement. So regarding the victim's memory issues here, right, the court says, let's look at what was being spent on this credit card. Here you have a victim, and again, this is the victim uh, who's in the wheelchair, who suffers from hydrocephalus. Um, She uh, almost never uses this card over the course of her history for anything other than a couple of small purchases, and she always pays off the balance. And then suddenly the defendant gets the card and spends up the money up to, you know, $50,000. That is completely inconsistent with the victim's purchase history. How could, it doesn't make sense that the victim would suddenly change how she spends the card um, out of nowhere with no explanation to spend it on a bunch of stuff that's only for the defendant, right? The victim had never made purchases at a sporting goods store, and here the money gets spent at a sporting goods store. Had never gotten tattoos, the money's getting spent at tattoos. Never visited Disney resorts, and the money's going to Disney resorts. She didn't even have a car, and there's a bunch of purchases for cars. So clearly here, this is being used for the defendant's benefit. Um, and if the cards are being taken, right, is that embezzlement or is that actual credit card theft and credit card fraud? And here the court says, remember, just like in white, the defendant's job was to return the credit cards to the victim's purse after the credit cards are being used, right? That's in her employment agreement. It's part of their practice. It's what she was trained to do. It's what she was supposed to do. It's what they normally did when they went shopping. 
So if she got those cards and spent them, she must have gotten the cards after the victim had returned to the purse, which means that she stole them. She took them without authority. And so here again, uh, just the mere fact that she has the permission of the victim to use the cards on some occasions to make small purchases for the victim doesn't mean it's not theft for her to go back and take those cards again and use them somewhere else. And then with regards, so again, here that would make it credit card theft and credit card fraud in addition to embezzlement. Now, writing herself checks, that's just plain old everyday embezzlement, right? Uh, and fortunately, in this case, it was pretty easy to prove that because she was getting paid twice for the same work. And also, she, she was uh, getting the victim to sign checks for days that she didn't work at all. Uh, and that was probably a mistake. That was probably pushing it just too far because it made it obvious at that point that she really was just stealing from the victim. And the court says um, here that, you know, the, the pattern of behavior demonstrates the intent to defraud, the intent to steal. Um, and it doesn't make sense that the victim would have paid her a salary and called it a loan um, or called it a gift. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so her sort of hypothesis of innocence, uh, the court dis dismisses the hypothesis in this case. So, uh, in that case, then, in Floyd, the court um, also, in Lynchburg, uh, affirms the conviction. So, you know, what's the lesson here? What's the takeaway? I mean, these cases are still very difficult, and I don't want to, um, you know, in any way diminish how difficult it is to prove a case where you have a caretaker or somebody who's in a position of trust, like uh, a power of attorney or a joint account holder and so on, uh, for uh, of stealing or embezzling money. But, you know, remember, if you have people who are in a position of trust, even if it isn't an employer-employee, uh, that can still be embezzlement. You can still convict someone of embezzlement if they're using their position of trust to exploit someone else or take someone else's funds and convert their to their own. Um, you know, the, my favorite example of this is Pittman versus Commonwealth, where somebody just asks to borrow someone else's car, takes the car and disappears with it, right? So there's an elderly man in the neighborhood, um, and Pittman knows that he'll kind of do whatever she wants him to do. And she says, hey, can I borrow your car for an hour or two? And then the next thing you know, the car is gone for two weeks, and it shows up in New York, and it's abandoned, and it's bashed up and destroyed. Um, and there the court says... She has the personal property belonging to the victim. She converts it to her own use. That's embezzlement, right? That's what the embezzlement charge is there for. And so, you know, that's certainly a useful tool. But the plain old larceny code section is a useful tool, right? And and that's what the court uses, excuse me, that's what the Commonwealth uses in the Chittam case, right? In Roanoke, where the victim steals money from her mother uh, from the joint account, there they discharge it with plain old larceny. And the court says, yeah, that's larceny, stealing from a joint account. Uh, here is larceny and the power of attorney is not a license to steal. So that's a good tool for you as well to consider. And then when you have victims who really don't understand or in a position where they can't understand the nature and consequences of their actions in a real uh, severe disability or situation or severe incapacity situation, that's where I think you should look to that code section, the 18.2178.1 code section. Uh, when you have somebody who truly is incapacitated. Because remember, what that code section says is it doesn't require a trespassery taking. It doesn't require a trick or a theft or a breaking in or smashing something or whatever. It simply means that the person, the offender here, the perpetrator here, using the person's incapacity, that is to say, using the person's inability to understand the nature or consequences of their actions, 
using that incapacity takes or obtains or converts money or other things of value with the intent to permanently deprive that person. And again, that person's you know that person might be an 18-year-old victim uh, who gets social security because of a severe disability, and you know they the person uh, you know has the mentality of a of a toddler. Um, and they get money and you say, hey, wouldn't you rather just give that money to me so that I can go to Disney and have a resort? And the person says, yeah, you go have fun at Disney, have a great time. You can have my money, whatever. You know, I'm not, I, you know, here, that's not what we would consider normally to be a larceny or a theft by trick or whatever. But how am I getting that money? I'm using it by incapacity. I'm using it, using that person's inability to understand the consequence of their actions. They're going to lose all their money. Um, and that's how I'm accomplishing it. And especially if you have a situation where somebody is a power of attorney. Uh, you know, that Chittam case has really strong language that you can rely on, I think, uh, that holds a powers of attorney responsible and says they must act in the person's best interest. They must act in good faith. They must act only within the scope of the authority granted in the power of attorney, and they must act loyally for the benefit of the principal, the person for whom they're acting. So some good cases from the Court of Appeals, I think helpful for you, uh, helpful legally for you, right? There are still hard cases, but maybe, you know, you got some, some, uh, some more tools in your toolkit. And I hope that was useful for you guys today. We don't do a lot on white collar, and maybe we should do some more. Do you want to do more on white collar? Let me know. Say, hey, that was useful. Let's do more on white collar cases. Uh, I can talk about white collar cases all day long, and I love them. I think they're really interesting. Um, maybe it wasn't interesting. Maybe we want to talk about something else. Like I said, General Assembly's in session. Uh, not a lot has come out so far. A lot of debate, a lot of interesting ideas. Uh, nothing's come out, but we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, but that's coming out. Supreme Court's revving up. Um, Justice Breyer's going to retire, but that's going to be next year. And for now, they got a lot of cases coming up. So we'll keep an eye on that too. Um, that's all for today, though. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher Podcast. We're on Apple Podcast. If you want me to be on another app, just let me know. I'll see if I can get on that too. But from today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.